today we're going to go back to the Gospel of John, and we're going to finish out chapter 6. And the whole Gospel of John is themed around what you find at the end of John, that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And all throughout John chapter 6, Jesus has um, taught those who are listening there about how he is the source of life. He is what, what, what he says here, I am the bread of life. And those who are listening have gotten hung up on, on the things that he has said, on the literal fulfillment of how, how can you, you know, what are you going to give us to prove these things? Or, or what is it that, that you do to show us this? And, and Jesus uh, then talks about how he's the fulfillment of that physical manna that, that God sent through Moses to the children of Israel. <clears throat> And last week, we looked at uh, these seeds of unbelief that have been sown in the hearts of many who are there, and how Jesus reiterated once again, when he uses this, the, this metaphoric expression that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's not talking about physically doing that, but he's talking about you have to fully embrace who he is as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the one uh, who gives life. And so today, we're going to close out this passage, and we're going to begin to, we're going to see here the, 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 the end reaction of all of these things as we look at this idea of, of true disciples in John chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. Therefore, and this word therefore is always important because it refers to what's gone on before. So because of this, because of all these things that Jesus said, because he has expressed who he is, and because he has expressed what it means to believe in him, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself and his, that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Lord, we now come to you asking that you would meet with us for a few minutes today that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to do your work in our heart today. You would use the word of God to convict us of sin, to show us our Savior, Jesus Christ, to show us the gospel, the, the, the good news that Jesus saves us from our sin, and the calling on the lives of true disciples to follow you with our lives. Lord, I pray today for one who may hear these things, who does not know you as their personal Savior, that you would convict them of their sin today. Show them the crossroads at which they stand, whether to place their faith in you or to reject you and the consequences of such a rejection. 
And Lord, would you show us in the lives of, of Christians today what it means to be a disciple, what it means to fully believe and embrace and follow you no matter what, to give you our hearts and our lives to submit to you as our Lord. We ask that everything we do and say here over the next few minutes would bring you praise and honor and glory. In your name we pray. Amen. We, as human beings, have a tendency in our selfishness and in our sinful quest to control everything we can in life, easily adopt this mindset that we always try to get the best of both sides in a situation. When we're faced with a decision and we like something on both sides, we say, well, what is it that I can do to benefit from both situations here, or, or if, if I want to go one way, but I want to take the other things with me. You can see it in many spheres of life. There are people who, who are out there and say, hey, I, I want a job, but when they, then they have these incredible stipulations on what type of job they want, the hours they want to work, the vacation time they have to have, or their work environment. We say we want to get in shape. But we really want to do it if, if we can just spend two days in the gym and then eat all the cookies we want the rest of the week, right? Perhaps one of the saddest instances that this takes place in our lives is as you look in our culture and see this thing that has become known as the prenuptial agreement. A recent poll found that 40% of people between 18 and 34 years old who were married or engaged, said they signed a prenuptial agreement. 40%. In these agreements, couples sign a legal document laying out exactly what will happen to all the assets in the event of a divorce. And sometimes they even record a video of them doing so. Some of these even include an agreement of what will happen to the children that come out of such a marriage. After this agreement is signed, the couple will then stand before an official or a minister and repeat those age-old words, with this ring, I thee wed, and all my earthly goods I thee endow, in sickness and in health, in poverty and wealth, till death do us part. One author suggested that in such prenuptial cases, shouldn't it be more accurately statements stated, all my worldly goods I thee endow, except for the ones listed in the prenup, till death do us part, or sooner on amicable terms as spelled out in the opening lines of our agreement. This is the ultimate, I want it both ways, and has the greatest of just-in-case statements that can be made. When it comes to being a disciple of Jesus, there are no two ways about it. There is no just-in-case mentality or statement that can be made. You either believe in Jesus and completely follow him, or you don't. You either are his disciple, or you're not. Many throughout the years have flocked to Jesus seeking to benefit from a profession of faith, but they've never truly followed him. Being a disciple is inseparable from being a Christian. Many have tried to separate the two, claiming that, well, I truly do follow Jesus, but, but doing the, the harder things of God and, and really digging in, that, that, that takes a certain level of Christianity. My friend, there are no levels of spirituality. There is no level of being, well, now you're disciple level. Once you profess belief in who Jesus is, you become a disciple. And that has certain ramifications and requirements on our lives as we submit to our Lord. We can't just have it both ways or make these just-in-case 
statements with Jesus. Jesus calls all believers to the same thing, genuine belief in himself that transforms the way you think, act, and live. It is a commitment to him as the Lord of your life, and it means that no matter what, you belong to him and you follow him. Though imperfect on this side of eternity, it is a consistent Holy Spirit-enabled pursuit of Jesus day in and day out. And those who follow Jesus while he walked on this earth were no different. There were many, and we'll see today, there were many who had made a convenient profession of faith in who he was, or profession of belief, as long as they were benefiting from that profession. However, when Jesus began to show the full scope and sequence of what discipleship and following him truly is, you see a division that takes place. And here in the passage before us today, we see those who deserted Jesus, for they were not true disciples. And we see those who have placed genuine faith in him. And what you see in this passage is true disciples of Jesus place their unwavering trust in him for salvation and declare him as the undisputed Lord of their lives. If you want to experience the joy of salvation, you want to experience the new life that's found in him, then you must place unaltering, unwavering faith in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is not, the, is not one option or some option or the fallback option. He is the only place to go. And if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then we have to say, okay, he is the Lord of our lives. We are his disciples. We follow him. And whatever that looks like and whatever that means. And there's a struggle there as well. That as we, we, we try to, to follow God and we try to follow him and we, we seek to, to do what he calls us to do, we, we, we fight, our flesh fights back against that. Because we have things in our lives that we try to hold on to and we say, well, this is mine, I can do this. And, and God says, no, it, it all belongs to me as a disciple. So let's look at the passage today. We're just going to see two major things as we go through this passage. The first one you see in verses 60 through 66 that as Jesus comes to the end of this discourse here, there is a great desertion that takes place amongst the disciples. Look at the hard reception that's found in verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? So understand that what we looked at last week when John referenced the Jews, and he's talking about the religious leaders of Israel, that the religious leadership of Israel, and specifically those there in Galilee, have scoffed at Jesus and his words. They have picked apart his origins, and they critiqued his discourse on a purely physical level. And all the while that they were doing this, they were revealing their own hearts that were hardened against his message of belief in himself. They, along with much of the multitude from the previous day's events, have turned away. And so what you're left with in verse 60 is, another, is, a, is a smaller group of people. This is not the multitude that he fed the day before. This is not the religious leadership of Israel, but it's a group of people that is known what? It's known in verse 60 as Jesus' disciples. Now, when you read that word, if you've been around a church, and you've read the things of the scripture, and you've heard things taught, you probably would race towards this thought of these 12 guys that are mentioned throughout the Gospels that were known as the disciples of Jesus. And that, that group of 12 certainly is included in this, 
Um, but this is, this is not the group that you would normally think of when you hear that word. Those 12 men that were mentioned, 11 of them that would go on and turn the world upside down in the book of Acts are certainly included, but John is referring to a much larger group. And what you get here is kind of this idea of concentric circles. So you have the larger group, which is known as the disciples of Jesus, and then within that group you have these 12 guys who, who Jesus addresses here at the end of that passage. We see in this passage what Jesus is, is showing us is that there is a difference if I can say it this way, between disciples and disciples. You understand what I'm saying? There's a difference between people who are calling themselves one thing and people who actually believe in who Jesus is. The word disciple that John uses here literally means student or learner. But that word here and here of itself, as it's used here, does not communicate anything about one's devotion or commitment to the cause. And here we see that with this with the difference behind another concept that, that, that John will show us here. This one is present in what the disciples here say to Jesus. Now, presumably, this group that's known as the disciples has been around to hear what Jesus has taught, and they've been around to see what Jesus has done in his ministry. But in this latest teaching, there is now a line of demarcation that's being drawn. There is a line that says, if you are truly a follower of Christ, this is of me, this is what you have to believe about me. This is what you have to confirm in your heart and life. Jesus has declared himself to be the bread of life. He has made his superiority to Moses abundantly clear. He has called for true believers to partake of himself that they may enjoy eternal life. He has denied his need to further prove anything to them. And he now calls for a choice to be made. So therefore, the disciples reveal their own hearts with their statement. They declare here that Jesus' words at the end of verse 60 are a hard saying. Literally, that word means that, that it is rough, withered, or stiff. And, and figuratively, it describes something that's hard to accept. They were beginning to realize that following Jesus entails a conscious choice to believe in him. Following Jesus is more than being amazed by what Jesus does. Following Jesus is more than just benefiting from his works. Following Jesus is more than agreeing with his statements or liking other followers. Following Jesus isn't about hanging on to see what you can get. Following Jesus means accepting him entirely. It means identifying with him, trusting in him, and depending on him no matter what. It entails a willingness to leave behind your own notions about Jesus and embracing what he says you must embrace about yourself, your sin, his identity, and the only hope for eternal life found in himself. And when faced with these hard facts, these these ones that are mentioned here could no longer abide these things. John uses a word picture here to, to communicate their response. He says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, now just take note of that word, heard, okay? We see here that when faced with these hard facts, uh, that, that, that they did not receive them. They heard Jesus' words, but didn't take them in. They ask a question using a different form of the same word John used. So John uses the Greek word that we have translated here, heard. The same Greek word in a different form is used in their response when they said, this is a hard saying, who can, and we have it translated here, understand it. The word better translated as understand is who can listen to it. 
How many of you understand that there is a difference between hearing and listening? Every parent in here knows there is a difference between hearing and listening. Every husband knows there is a difference between hearing and listening. You know, as men, have your wife ever finished saying something? And you say, did you get that? And you go, yes, but just in case, say it again, because I wasn't listening, right? They had heard Jesus' words loud and clear. The things that Jesus said were not impossible to understand. They were just difficult to embrace and accept. Listening to the words of Jesus, truly listening to what Jesus says, leads one then to obey what Jesus says we're to do. It means obedience by believing in him. It means obedience by continuing to listen to him and doing what he says one is to do as a disciple. And those who do not wish to obey God, they still were hanging around with Jesus at this point until the end of this passage. And those who do not obey God still crowd into church buildings even today. They know all the right words and the right phrases they have to say. They know the right people to talk to. And they know how to get what they want. But they do not truly wish to obey God and submit to him. And they are no different than those who stood before Jesus on this day. These disciples were not willing to listen to what Jesus was saying. Their reception was hard. And Jesus, knowing this, calls them out. And he gives to them even harder words in verses 61 through 65. It says there, when Jesus knew in himself, his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you. See, Jesus is God, and as God, he knows the heart of every person, and he knew his disciples who were standing there that day wrestled with these words. He knew the religious leadership would turn away and reject him, but that did not stop him from continuing to declare the truth of himself. Jesus knew what the reaction of those people would be, but he continued to give the truth. As I thought about that this week, I thought perhaps there's an an application to the church in the day and age we live in. Some, in an effort to draw in more people and not to offend the listener, have toned down the message of the gospel. They have gone soft on sin and light on obedience, but Jesus did no such thing. He made it abundantly clear that if you are a disciple, this is what is expected of you. And so should we. We should give the whole truth of the word of God. Preaching is what is often called the whole counsel of God. And make no apologies for it. We give the truth in love. Jesus, knowing the hearts of those people before him that day, asked them about their posture towards him. He asked them, do these statements, these things that I say, do they offend you? This means, does it cause them to stumble or to give up believing in him? What John is doing here is John drives home the point of decisiveness and commitment to Christ time and again. And here the point is made clear yet again. What do Jesus' words do to the hearers here? Do they cause them to turn away from him? Because they have to make a decision. They have to make a choice. You are faced with what Jesus says, and now you have to do something with it. That's the point that every person comes to with the gospel. You have to do something with it. So then Jesus continues. He says, what then? 
If you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus asked them, he furs these statements with some harder ones. He says, he asked them if seeing them ascend back up into heaven would convince them of his heavenly origins. This is a direct point that's been a struggle over the last little couple of weeks in this passage we've seen. They're wrestling with the origins of Jesus. Last week specifically, the, the religious leaders are attacking him, saying this is the son of, of Joseph. We know his mom and his dad. Basically what they're saying, they, and they were denying Jesus' heavenly origins. But there also may be a secondary point here. Because Jesus would eventually ascend back into heaven. At the end of his earthly ministry, in Acts chapter 1, you see that ascension. But, but precluding that, was, or, or preluding that, was his ascension to the cross. To be crucified as the, son, or as the Lamb of God. Jesus had come to complete the work of redemption. And if his teachings were too much for these false disciples to handle, his death most certainly would be too much for them to handle. He would one day ascend back to the Father, but not before that mission was complete. As Jesus had told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus says, what if I went back, then would you believe me? But in that saying, he's saying, but on the way there, you're going to fall away because of the crucifixion. He reminds the disciples then where true power lies. They they were looking for a sign. They were looking for for him to do something. But Jesus says, as they had gotten hung up on everything that he had said literally, he makes it emphatically clear that it is, there's nothing of the flesh that gives life, but it is his spirit, he says in verse 63. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. True. Eternal life. True eternal life cannot be found in the flesh, but in the power of God's spirit alone. Jesus would physically pay the price for sin that he could impart to us new spiritual, eternal life. And since the life Christ promises is spiritual life and spiritual change, there is nothing you and I can do to gain that life physically. You cannot help God along in your salvation. You cannot make yourself more acceptable. You cannot figure these things out and then one day, well, then I'll just receive it. It'll just come because I did enough good things. You cannot count on someone else's spiritual merit. You must be regenerated by God's spiritual work through a personal belief in him. And the very thing that people claimed they would not listen to was the very thing that would save their souls. What is it they said? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus says at the end of verse 64, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. So the things that you are turning away from, the things that you are rejecting, the things that you're saying you can't listen to, that's your only hope. The very words of Jesus are life. The words of Jesus are not dead letters on a page. They are life itself. We need the word of God to show us our sin and point us to the Savior. 
We need the word of God to reveal Jesus to us. We need the word of God to give us life in God. We need the word of God to enjoy eternity. And Jesus revealed himself through his words. But those who gathered there that day did not believe them. Jesus continues in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who would betray him. And there are still today many who do not believe the words of God. Instead, they take the word of God and they seek to rip it apart. They dissect it. They ask ridiculous questions of it. They expose their unbelieving hearts in doing so. But the word of God says what it means and means what it says. It always has. It doesn't matter how you twist it to try to fit your agenda in life. It doesn't change. And Jesus calls out those who stand before him that day. He says very clearly that there are some who do not believe. And God's, Jesus' omniscience as God is put on display once again. He knew from the very beginning who would listen to him and who would not. And he knew who would betray him. Yet he does not stop proclaiming the message. Why? Because the responsibility for responding to God falls back on us. Here is that tension, again, we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks. In verses 64 and 65, it's put on display as Jesus continues. And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. It is God who draws us to himself. It is God who works in us. But it is also we who then must do something with God's gracious work in our hearts. There will always be those who reject Jesus, not because they lack information, but because they refuse to exercise belief in him. God must give us the ability to come in faith, but we must respond to the drawing of God. And people come to God for all kinds of reasons. People come to the things of God for all types of reasons in their lives. Some come because they want to assuage a guilty conscience. Some come seeking personal benefit and clout in their lives. Some come looking for a miraculous healing or deliverance from a difficult situation. Some come out of duty and expectation. But if you do not come to God in faith, responding to his work in your heart, you have not truly come to him for salvation from your sin. And eventually, you will walk away. If you have not truly come to Jesus believing in who he is, you will walk away. Because you're going to find out that God doesn't work on your agenda. He calls you to believe in him. The heart that has not truly been regenerated by God cannot handle the things of God. Eventually, the pressures are too much, the worldly distractions are too great, the conviction of sin is unbearable, and the disguise cannot be held up any longer. And we see that is exactly what happens to these ones as they turn away. In verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Listen, if... If, if someone got up in a church and preached a message on a Sunday morning and most of the church walked away and never came back, that'd be pretty discouraging. That is exactly what happens here. Jesus preaches a message and most people walk away. But that is exactly what this message was intended to do. He brings people to a decision about, them, about himself. They must now either accept 
or reject him and his teaching. And unsurprisingly, we see exactly what happens. His teachings are too much. His words are too great great in their minds. And they can no longer abide these things because they are not willing to place their faith in him, relinquishing their selfish confidence. They had heard the truth, but they would not listen to it. Therefore, they walked away. These false disciples made their decision to abandon Jesus. The teaching of Jesus sifted those who followed him. And that is a very sad thing. They heard the truth. They saw the Messiah, and they abandoned him. And it's just as sad as it is then, it's just as sad to see it today. Many have heard the truth of the gospel. They have been confronted with their lack of faith in Jesus, and yet they turn away. I could probably ask you in this room how many of you knew someone, maybe you grew up with someone, who professed the same faith in Jesus Christ that you did, but eventually they walked away. And we have so many explanations in our heart and so many explanations in our head. But the truth of the matter is, if you do not believe in Jesus as your Savior, you do not personally place your entire faith and trust in him to follow him as his disciple, eventually something's going to happen. You're going to say, that's not for me. I'm not forced to do it anymore, so I'm out. I'm not benefiting anymore, so I'm gone. And as sad as that is, that's the truth of exactly what happens. It happened in the life of Jesus. It happens today. The things of God, the things of Jesus, are difficult to accept if we look at them from a human perspective. Because it takes everything out of my hands and it says, this is all up to God. This is who, this is who I have to trust in. This is who I have to depend on. And this is what is entailed in that confession of him as Lord and Savior. And as we read that, it is, it's, it's wow. I mean, that's, that's heavy. But they walked away. Did they ever come back? We don't know. Perhaps some, after the ministry of Jesus, came back and heard the message of the gospel and responded. But I don't think it would be wrong to say that, that, that some, if not many of them, spend an eternity separated from God because they rejected Jesus Christ. But we see that even as they walk away, there are some who remain. Secondly, today, not only do we see the great desertion, we see the genuine belief that is found here as well. We see the confession of that in verses 67 through 69. Jesus, then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? So for the first time in John, we have a reference to this group that is known as the Twelve. Now, remember at the beginning of the message when I said, if you've heard about the disciples, this is that group, okay? These are the twelve disciples whom Jesus has called personally to learn from him. These are the men who had given up their livelihoods to commit to following him. And it may be that they are now the, the only ones left on this day. Or it may be that later he spoke to them in private. We don't know for sure exactly how, the, how it went, but we do know that this is the group that's left behind. And Jesus asked them a simple question. Do they plan to leave as well? 
And actually, it's interesting how this statement is phrased. It's phrased in such a way as to highlight and strengthen their own faith. Because it is a question that expects a negative response. You could state the question this way. You do not want to leave also, do you? And it's a question that, again, in the grammar of the Greek, is expected for someone to say, no, I don't. I don't want to leave. Because Jesus isn't asking this question to seek some sort of self-reassurance. He is asking this question to preserve his own disciples and to show them their faith that they have placed in him. To help them to understand these things. I mean, imagine... These 12 guys who have walked with Jesus, I mean, the day before, they're looking around, seeing people want to make him Messiah. They get sent, they, they get sent across the water. They see Jesus walking in the water in the storm. They hear all the things he's saying. Now they see all these people walk away. Wouldn't you have questions? And what Jesus does is, does, is just brings it right back to their faith that they have placed in him. It is here we see a strong and wonderful and stirring confession. It shouldn't surprise you, by the way, that the one who speaks up is Peter, ever the spokesman, right? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He makes an incredible point here, Peter does, through a rhetorical question, to whom shall we go? Where else are these men going to go? And the answer is nowhere. They recognize that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Jesus has just shared with those who walked away that life is found only in those words. And now Peter confesses him this himself. That Jesus is the only one who possesses these life-giving words. Notice that, that Peter keyed in on that. You have the words of eternal life. One commentator said it this way, man is so constituted that he must go to someone he cannot stand by himself. And that is true. God has created all of us as beings who are dependent on him. We are created to bring glory to him. We are not fulfilled if we do not come to him. One of my friends said it this way, that that within the heart of every person is a God-shaped vacuum. And nothing else can fill that void except God himself. But over the years, we have tried many things. Men have run to the teachings of Buddha, of Confucius, Muhammad, or Krishna. They have subscribed to the ideas of Marx, Darwin, and Lenin. They have even convinced themselves, in some cases, well, I don't believe in anything. I don't run to to anybody. Those in Jesus' day had their religions The Jews had their laws and traditions that they held so dear and even greater than God who had given them. But in the end, the only place to go is Jesus. He has the words of life. And having heard his words of life, the true disciples had come to the most important decision. That's what Peter continues. That's what we said. That truly listening to what Jesus says leads to obedience. He says... You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They believed he truly was the Messiah. 
for they had come to know him as such. When he says the son of the living God, that could also be translated the holy one of God. And it is a title that, that, that highlights that Jesus is set apart from sin and it's consecrated to carry out God's redemptive work. It is a transcendent title that sets Jesus apart as the Messiah. And Peter's phrase here, we have come to believe and know, communicates that word know is a very important word because it communicates a knowledge through experience. They had walked with Jesus, they had listened to Jesus, they had spent time with Jesus, and therefore they had come to know this is who Jesus is. The disciples' faith wasn't perfect. I mean, you, you read the Gospels and you find out even with a confession like this, these guys still don't fully grasp exactly who Jesus is and what he's going to do, but they believe in he's the Messiah. He's the one who gives us life. They struggled mightily, but they had come to realize that Jesus is who he says he is. And they had responded in faith to the Father's drawing in their hearts. But even in this, there is an undertone of rejection that's coming in one of them. We see in verses 70 and 71, the coming break. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You know, it's interesting. Peter speaks up, not just for himself, but he's speaking for the entire group, right? He says, at least these 12 guys, this is what we believe. But Jesus says he's the one who has chosen them. And what he means there, he talks about their apostleship. They're, they're disciples, but they're also those who will be sent out on a mission for the work of Christ in the coming days. And Jesus had graciously chosen them for that. But yet even in this group, Jesus says there is a dissenter. He calls them here a devil. The word devil means slanderer or false accuser. Understand that just because one is close to the work of God does not mean Satan will not attack that person. Indeed, Satan will use every opportunity he has to launch attacks on the things of God. And within the 12, Satan would use one of these professing believers in Jesus. We know, as John tells us here, This one was Judas Iscariot. Judas heard the words and the teachings of Jesus. He observed the miracles. He saw the testimonies of who Jesus is. Yet, at the end of it all, he would still choose to betray Jesus and do the work of Satan. And his betrayal of Jesus would fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament where the psalmist wrote in Psalm 41.9, Even my own familiar friend and whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus knew that about Judas, and yet he still called him. He knew Judas would turn away and turn against him, but he also knew the work that God had called him to. And he knew that God uses all things in his providential plan, and the heinous act of rejection by Judas would set in motion the sacrifice of the Son of Man that would bring about the redemption of man. Now that does not excuse Judas' betrayal and his sin of unbelief. But it is interesting, as John writes these things, remember this is, this is years, decades after these things happened, but understand that, that, that the disciples would reflect on the things that Jesus said here and their faith would once again be strengthened because Jesus, what he's doing here is he's prophesying of what Jesus is going to do. 
And though he doesn't come right out and say, this is who it is, he said, this is what's going to happen. And guess what? It's going to happen exactly like Jesus said it is. But what we see today is true disciples respond to God's word. They believe in Jesus, the Son of God. They find life in him through his spirit, and they live that new life in his strength. So let us declare Jesus as the Christ, as these true disciples did. The Holy One of God, and let us embrace his word with our lives. True disciples of Jesus place their unwavering trust in him for salvation and declare him as the undisputed Lord of their lives. The message of the gospel is fairly straightforward, right? But it's difficult to accept. It's difficult to embrace. Because if you wish to hold on to your own self-efforts, your selfish pride, and your sinful practices, you cannot embrace the message of Jesus, the one who died for you. You must set aside yourself and embrace him as your only savior. And with Jesus, there's no such thing as, well, just in case, or I want it both ways. The words of Jesus call for your personal response. If you have not accepted him as Savior, truly hanging up your own agenda, you can do that today. You can set aside your sin and know the Savior. You can leave behind all doubt and be doubly reassured in the Lord. What is sad is the amount of those who claim to be disciples of Jesus yet they live their lives in a different way. You claim to be a follower of Christ, yet you continue to consistently embrace sin, casting aside the conviction of God. You claim to be a follower of God, yet you want nothing to do with God's word and neglect it or read it only as an academic exercise. You claim to be a follower of God, yet you sacrifice gathering with other disciples in the body of Christ in a local church, checking off your one to two attendances a week because I have other stuff and church doesn't fit into my schedule or just isn't my style. And the term half-hearted disciple is not a reality. You're either a disciple or you're not. True disciples embrace their life's calling from the Lord. And perhaps you're here today and you, you are a disciple, and you, but you wrestle with these things. God has convicted your heart over and over about things that you know you need to make right, but you continue to refuse to do it. And then you wonder when you sit down and you pray, you think, well, God is so far away. God doesn't care about me. You don't, you don't pay attention and live for him. No wonder he feels far away. Because you cannot continue to live in a way that's opposite of him and enjoy the fellowship of God in your life. It just doesn't work. Or we wonder why we experience the chastening of God in our lives. Because if we are not willing to submit to him, we cannot experience the comfort of walking with him. The Lord is so gracious to chasten those who belong to him. He is so loving to convict our hearts of sin. And may we, in his grace, respond to him. My friend, there is nowhere else to go. He is the source of the words of life. May he do his work in our hearts today, drawing us to himself and drawing us into a deeper, greater walk with him. And I encourage you, as God works in your heart, that you respond to him. In a moment when we pray, if God is doing work in your heart, I encourage you right there where you are, 
to respond to God. If that means you've got to get on your knees and pray there because you feel like that, that's, that, that's what I need to do, then do it. If you need to hang around after church today and talk to somebody about something that's going on in your life, let's do it. But it's not worth putting off. It's not worth saying, well, there'll be another chance. You don't know if there'll be another chance. It's not worth Christian saying, well, I'll just go on and keep doing my thing and God will just sort it out. Friend, what a horrible attitude it is to take to God. We submit to him and follow him. And in his grace, he gives us the strength to obey him every day. Father, we thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Lord, we admit that we are not perfect people. We struggle. We are so easily consumed by the things of this world. Lord, we humbly thank you today for your grace. But Lord, may we not presume on the grace of God in our lives. Lord, as Christians today that are here, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts. And you would show us these things where we have slacked off in our call to be a disciple, a learner, a follower committed to you. Lord, would you give us the strength and the courage to make those things right, to confess our sin, to spend time with you, to do the things you have called us to do, to share the gospel with others. Lord, we go on and on because your word is full of these admonitions to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would make that a priority in our lives today. Father, I pray for those who still wrestle with salvation, who have maybe been around church their whole lives, have heard the things of the gospel, but they have just never continued, they just continue to never internalize those truths and instead live their own truth, so to speak. Lord, would you show them who you are today? Would you, again, convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself? We ask for your spirit to have the freedom to do that work today. We ask now that as we prepare to depart from this place that you would watch over and protect us Bring us again here tonight to worship you. Your name we pray.